candidly, the the Biden, both President Biden, Vice President Harris, they 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 seem very tone deaf when they're asked, you know, basic questions about, you know, nuts and bolts, you know, parts of parts of living. I mean, they uh, the press secretary dismisses people's concerns about supply chain. The press secretary dismisses people's concerns about gas prices. As you just heard on this week's Flyover Country with Scott Jennings, we're going to kick around Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's political situation. We're going to talk about trust in the media. We've got a special guest panelist, Jonathan Feltz, joining us from Raleigh, North Carolina, and our famous lightning round, all this week on the Flyover Country Podcast with me, Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. All right, welcome into the Flyover Country Podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Thanks for being with us, and thanks to all of our listeners who have uh, logged on so far and listened to our excellent early episodes. We've had episodes interviewing Jake Tapper from CNN, Josh Krauschauer from the National Journal. Our most recent release was U.S. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, uh, and we had a lot of excellent feedback from uh, listeners on that from around the country, even a few international listeners. So thanks for being part of the Flyover Pod community and uh, joined this week by my friend and co-host Joe Arnold. Joe, thanks for being with us this week and uh, thanks for being part of the show so far. I think we're off to a great start. Absolutely. Excited to be here and excited about your uh, your special friend guest today. Yeah, uh, we have a good, uh, good uh, uh, guest panelist this week, live from Raleigh, North Carolina, joined by one of my oldest friends in politics, and I mean that not because of the number of years we've worked together, but the number of years that he has attained in terms of his own longevity. Jonathan Feltz, <laughs> Jonathan, uh, thank you for being with us uh, live from Raleigh. It's great to be here today, Scott. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, Jonathan uh, uh, is, has been a, a big traveler in politics. You date back uh, to uh, what was your first campaign? Uh, tell, again, you have a really interesting early career campaign experience. <laughs> Well, in 1996, I drove up to New Hampshire. I was part of the big uh, Dick Luger for president campaign. Uh, we were there in case the wheels fell off the Bob Dole campaign, and the wheels were firmly on there, as our campaign manager noted when we dropped out. But then I uh, later went in that same cycle. I worked for uh, Robin Hayes, running for governor in North Carolina. We had a uh, upset victory in the primary, a classic conservative taking on the moderate come from behind win there. And then I also did a lot of advance for Bob Dole during the 1996 presidential campaign. And yeah, then. Yeah, you had you had excellent early campaign experiences, and then uh, um, and then you worked for Dan Quayle. Yes, I did. I did. Um, I was part of the big Quayle ninety nine and a half campaign. We didn't quite make it all the way to two thousand. Um, uh, well, one one little funny story I'll tell about that is, uh, you know, of course, Dan Quayle had been the vice president for uh, George H W Bush and had built up a lot of favors over the years, and the the one entertainment group that uh, maintained their commitment to come do something for Dan Quayle during the straw poll. I'm actually blanking on his name right now, but the singer from Texas whose greatest hit was looking for love in all the wrong places. And it turns out that really was probably the best, uh, best song for us to sing at the straw poll. We, uh, we did manage to beat Orrin Hatch, but uh, unfortunately we did not uh, proceed beyond the straw poll that year. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, and then you and I crossed paths uh, during the George W. Bush administration. Uh, did you, did you end up working on the Bush campaign in 2000? I, I was not on the Bush campaign in 2000, no. I, you, I, you, joined, you were in 04. You were the executive director of the North Carolina uh, campaign, and I was sitting in my office out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> and so Jonathan and I first got to know each other via telephone 
by sitting on conference calls, being berated by our bosses for, uh, <laughs> why didn't you make more phone calls? Why haven't we knocked on more doors? And then we were being encouraged by our bosses to make more phone calls. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Encouraged. Yeah, that's the that's the positive spin on it. And no, then Jonathan us. and I, we we wound up in the White House Office of Political Affairs together after Bush won his second term, and our desks were uh, right next to each other, and uh, we became uh, friends in in the White House. Uh, between 2005 through 2007. Jonathan actually did a short stint in there as Dick Cheney's political director, and then he was the final White House political director at the end of the Bush-Cheney administration. Uh, so long, long career in politics. And then since then, Jonathan, you've uh, been in Afghanistan uh, doing some work uh, uh, over there, and then you uh, sort of drove around the country for a year. You worked for the bankers. You've had sort of a long career in public affairs, public relations, and political consulting. So your experiences are, are so diverse. It's, uh, it's great to have you here to talk about all this stuff. No, it's great to be here. I appreciate it. So Jonathan, yeah. while you and Scott were, were uh, toiling in the political uh, world, I was uh, back here in Louisville, Kentucky, in flyover country, Scott, and uh, toiling in the in the world of the media and radio initially and then television news for Oh, about 15, 16 years and covering a lot of politics back here. And I actually had occasion to interview Scott uh, during certain campaigns and things like that. And actually, if I, I'd like to start the podcast uh, this time around by talking about the media, of all things, and your perspectives on that, both of you, especially given uh, I'm, not, I'm not just hand wringing because there's a lot of it. There's some things in here that are legitimately concerning, but there's been a lot of, of chatter in the last uh, month or so uh, about how different narratives and how the media got things wrong, whether it's the Steele dossier and some things you know, misproven now. And, 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 and frankly, seeing that uh, some of the actors that were uh, up to no good in terms of just trying to plant stories, you have the Aspen Institute's uh, report coming out about the disinformation and how they think there needs to be sort of a structural almost a governmental approach to fixing some of this. But, but Jonathan, we can start with you just, you know, and your views of this. And also, frankly, as, as a political operative, you know, um, whether you think that this, the deck is stacked against you the entire time anyway. <laughs> no, that's a great point. It's uh, it, it, it has been amusing. I'll, I'll, I, I don't want to steal Scott's thunder. I, I know one of his tweets he made earlier this week on this, on this exact report uh, really resonated with me. But I'll tell you from my personal experience, and I'll say like over the past five years, I was a Jeb Bush uh, senior advisor here in North Carolina back in 2015. And a little bit of 2016, uh, Scott and I spent some time trudging around uh, western New Hampshire, knocking on doors for Jeb. And now I'm working with uh, Ted Budd for U.S. Senate here in North Carolina. He was the candidate endorsed by Donald Trump with Donald Trump's first major political appearance outside of Florida back in June uh, June of this year. And I mentioned that to say that uh, – I've handled a lot of press over the years. As Scott said, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And I've I've dealt with both the, the Trump savior syndrome in one regard in terms of a lot of Republicans think Donald Trump can do no wrong. But now I'm dealing with the Trump derangement syndrome. And when I deal with press, uh, especially national reporters right now, the fact that we are now the Donald Trump endorsed candidate, it, it is impossible to get a fair shake in any way, shape or form. And it's to the point that North Carolina, both in 2014 and again in 2020, when the National Republican Senatorial Committee, when they did their after-action reports, they noted that the North Carolina press corps was the most hostile press corps in the country in terms of anti-Republican bias and whatnot. And the the anti-Trump bias on the national level right now is such that that when when various national publications have done hit pieces on my current client, I've actually had some of the most biased reporters here in North Carolina. One guy literally told me, so Jonathan, why would such and such publication, why would they write it in such a skewed way? <laughs> I had to just start laughing 
because of, I don't know why. Why don't you tell me why you think they write it such a skewed way? And just the the, the national narrative has been so anti uh, anti Trump that I mean, you know, again, Trump savior syndrome, Trump derangement syndrome. It's 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 two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. Uh, but the difference is the national press corps; they have no ability, no self awareness whatsoever in terms of recognizing their built in bias and their their desire to shape the narrative to, to shape the story to fit their specific narrative. Facts be damned. We have a yeah, short I, attention span. As if they say, Scott, just briefly, we have a short attention span. Uh, maybe thinking that Donald Trump is responsible for disinformation, if you will. Well, it seems to me that Donald Trump uh, exploited the growing distrust that people had in media in the first place. And the you know fake news, basically, and that, that label, there's a reason why it rang true, to borrow a word, with people, uh, with Donald Trump. Now, of course, we're still dealing with some of the after effects of all the last, you know, the four or five years. But but Scott, go ahead. Yeah, we, we've just had over the, you know, before the show, we were talking about this. We've just had this convergence of all these uh, media trust and disinformation stories over the past few days. And I, I don't know why all these things came together uh, over the last few days, but, you know, it started for me last week with Andrew Sullivan, who uh, I, I subscribed to his his uh, newsletter, and he wrote this, what I think is a must-read piece, sort of just indicting the media over this string of misses, 2016 election, Rittenhouse, Covington, uh, Russian collusion, vaccines, bounties on U.S. soldiers, the lab leak theory, Jussie Smollett, the Pulse shooting, the Atlanta shootings, Hunter Biden's laptop, inflation, the Steele dossier. And in Sullivan's estimation, you know, his direct quote is the mainstream media got every single one wrong. And so his piece came out. Uh, I was doing some commentary on CNN about the Rittenhouse case and and sort of watching some of the commentary about uh, about what's being said about that case and how, you know, frankly, some wrongheaded and wrong some of it is. Um, and then this Aspen Institute report came out you know, warning that we have this crisis of trust in information in our country. And one of the co-writers of the report is Katie Couric, who was most recently seen admitting to covering up or editing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice's own words, to protect her. You know, Ginsburg gave Couric the opinion, her sort of opinion about uh, uh, some of these uh, racial uh, uh, race relations matters going on in the United States, Colin Kaepernick and other issues. And Couric literally omitted it to protect her, she says, from her own opinion. And so you've got one of these mainstream media people putting out a report saying we have this crisis of trust and misinformation. And at the same time is, in my opinion, part of it. And I just thought the extreme lack of self-awareness coming from someone like that, you know, warning us on the one hand about mistrust and misinformation, on the other hand, being one of the most recent high-profile purveyors of it. And then finally, uh, and I don't know if you guys had a chance to read it, but this morning, there's, a, I think, a really eye-opening op-ed, and I, I can't even believe they printed it in the, wall, in the New York Times. This is Bill uh, Gruskin. From a journal, yeah, from a, from a journalism professor. And, you know, he, there were a lot of eye-opening uh, passages in there, but he was talking about the Russia dossier, the Steele dossier. One of the, I'll just read you the, the passages that I thought were most impactful to me. Uh, plenty of reporters were skeptical of the dossier, but they hesitated to dismiss it because they didn't want to look like they were carrying water for Trump or his cronies. I mean, that was one passage. And then the other passage was, in a perfect world, 
journalists would treat people they don't like the same way they treat those they do like, but this is not a perfect world. And so I, I would highly recommend if you haven't picked up this uh, guest essay out of the New York Times today, written by uh, Bill uh, Gruskin. He's a professor of uh, a professor of professional practice at uh, Columbia Journalism School, former academic dean. Uh, I, I just, I mean, the self-reflection is great. I mean, it's too late, of course, for for Donald Trump's presidency. I mean, two and a half years were totally destroyed by the entire Russia narrative, which was fueled by the dossier talk, which has now been completely and totally discredited. Jonathan and Joe, I don't know what you all think. I just, I, I, I think the self-reflection is necessary. But what do you? How do you go back in time and correct the damage? I mean, half of an entire presidency was destroyed by this. Well, I think a big part of this too. I mean, you know, the, you know we're here on flyover country. Uh, I'm not flyover country, but I'm not not in uh, one of the urban centers, so to speak, here in North Carolina. And one of the other big things right now is that so many journalists now in state capitals, you know, they they're not you know elder statesmen who have got 40 plus years of experience covering politics. They're Generation Z. They're millennials. They, uh, I mean, they were they were in elementary school when the Bush uh, Bush campaign was going on back in 2000, so to speak. And one of the big things I found interesting when I made the comment to someone that. You know, did you did it ever occur to you that people have questions about the elections because it was 1988? You know, the last century was the last time a Republican got elected, and the National Press Corps did not say, "Oh, this is an illegitimate election." And I said, "At what point do you say the media bears some responsibility for people's questioning uh, the foundations of our of our democracy?" And and the people, I mean, a lot of them, they were actually kind of the, the first person I said it to was sort of stunned because he just flat out didn't really know his history or anything like that. And so that's, I think that's a, another part of this narrative. Yeah, I, I, think of, the, uh, I think the on that front, I mean, you look back at the, you know, the 2000 election. I mean, openly que- it was openly questioned whether George W. Bush had stolen the election. By the way, Terry McAuliffe, who just got beat in Virginia, he was still touting that in right. October of his own failed campaign. He was still out there saying, well, you know, the Supreme Court stopped the count. I mean, it's been proven that Bush won fair and square in Florida. They questioned it no four. In fact, Benny Thompson, the chairman of the January 6th Oversight Committee, voted against certifying Bush in 2004. Trump's election was, of course, questioned, and Hillary Clinton to this day claims Russia stole the election. So when Republicans win elections, it's fine to question the legitimacy. When Democrats win elections, it's a huge problem. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's not just the Democrats who do it. I think your point is, is well taken. Back to the the point about the uh, you know reporters and journalists or news organizations and there's two things. One is Jonathan, you pointed out as far as how do you go back or maybe Scott, you asked the question to go back and correct the damage. It's it's really interesting to watch to see how these different uh, journalistic organizations are choosing to do that. Uh, some of them are acknowledging it. Some of them are scrubbing the the. The, the articles from their websites. Some of them are making revisions or clarifications, but of course it's nowhere near the amount. And it's, it's, it's an age old, you know, axiom in journalism. The, the clarifications never get as much attention as the headline that comes out in the, in the first place. But the other point I was going to sort of bring up, you know, it just seems to me that for the long, long longest time, the a scoop in journalism or the kind of the, what you didn't want to get beat at was someone else getting the story out before you did. And it almost seems to me today is there's a competition among journalists who can be the most aggressive in being critical, who can who can hype up that that language to the point where they're going to be the person. And maybe this is driven by social media, the person who's going to get the biggest traction out of that story. 
And because if you're going to report something fairly much, you know, I'm going to say down the middle or maybe a little more critically, uh, you're not going to get anywhere near the traction uh, in, in a in a viral sense as as the person who's much more aggressive. You know, Gruskin, the the writer of the New York Times piece I referenced, he actually addresses this topic in the last paragraph of his piece. And he says, journalists could follow the advice I once got from Paul Steiger, who was managing editor of the Wall Street Journal when I was editing articles for the front page. Several of us went to his office one day, eager to publish a big scoop that he believed wasn't rock solid. Steiger told us to do more reporting. And when we told him we'd heard competitors' footsteps, Steiger responded, well, there are worse things in this world than getting beaten on a story. And so that was an example of someone who, you know, caution, slow down. And of course, that's the right answer. But I, I, I think there's something beyond just wanting the scoop. I, I also think there's peer pressure in the industry to to be like everyone else. And and it's always hard to be a contrarian in any industry. It's always hard to be the one person who says, well, hold on a second, especially in this case, when if you had been that person, you would have been seen by your peers as taking up for Trump. And that just became absolutely socially unacceptable. Yeah, totally agree with you. But it's 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 also one of those things now too, where there's just this desperation for clicks. I mean, the fact is, a lot of these national um, uh, media conglomerates they've they've not done a good job in the internet era, dating back 20 years, and so now they're finding themselves in constant financial trouble. Where uh, you know the rumors always been that supposedly some of these reporters are getting their contracts include like how many clicks do you get on your tweets and whatnot. Uh, and, and they're they're more almost like content monkeys than they are actual journalists. And 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 we're dealing with an issue here in North Carolina where. There was a negative story on the national level that uh, was mostly untrue, but there's this negative story that came out. And then uh, a local paper here in North Carolina, a fairly big paper, the reporter called me and said, well, what's, what's your response? I said, what's my response to what? I said, he said, what's your response to the story? I said, well, read the story, and there, there's my response. And we went back and forth for about five minutes, and I finally said, you're trying to write a process story where there is no process. He said, well, someone's going to use this against you. I said, well, and when they do – you can write a process story about the process that's happening, but right now you're trying to interject yourself as part of this process. And that's, that's unfortunately exactly what he did. And it was a completely, you know, fact-free story. And now it, it, it really is part of the narrative. And again, it's a narrative pushed by the media. That's in no way, shape or form based. In fact, it's just someone desperate for clicks and someone who also, to your point, uh, Joe talking about how, or uh, Scott talking about how it's not cool, if you will, to be seen as taking up for Trump. It's a function now that I'm, I'm, I'm very convinced that his bosses, both on the corporate level and in the editorial booth, and, and you know, they definitely want to go after Trump. And, 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 and this story has been around for literally 20 years now, and it's only a story after my candidate gets endorsed by President Donald Trump. I, I mean, I think the real question, and we can, we can close on this, Joe, because I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on it, because you, you were in local news for so long and local media for so long, but you also covered national level stories. So you sort of had a foot in both worlds. But the core question is, is any of this, you know, media distrust going to change between now and 2024? And knowing the kind of election we just had in 2020, the kind of election we had in 16, I mean, my thought is no. In fact, it's going to get worse because they keep missing on the same side of the plate. And and so, you know, if you're if you're thinking about how this is going to manifest itself in a 2024 campaign where Donald Trump's going to, I think, run again and, and be the odds on favorite for the Republican nomination, th- th- you know, there's there's really nothing the media can do about it. Uh, and, and my instinct is they're going to think they should do something about it and they're going to make it even worse than it already has been. And by the way, it's been pretty bad. 
Well, a couple of things. One is is that this is you know the over generations you know, attitudes toward media, attitudes you know culturally change. I think generations are becoming more compressed, and and we have those those changes more uh, more quickly now. And I'm just like I, I bring that up just thinking about when Jonathan was talking about some of the younger folks who didn't maybe were in elementary school during the the Bush years. You know, I I do think that the, as far as the long term future of all this, that our children are all going to be far more uh, critical or scrutiny or scrutinizing of what they see online because, you know, we all grew up in a generation where some of those things were considered to be more legitimate. I, that said, uh, confirmation bias is, is certainly a thing. It's, it's the reason why these, you know, these very virulent, um, you know, very different looking media outlets exist and people will continue to look for those things. I don't see that changing between now and 2024. People will still be hunting the information that they want to get. That's going to, uh, that confirm their biases. The problem is, is that you would hope that journalists aren't doing the same thing. And that's, that, that's the, the, the root problem we have here is that it's one thing for the general public, you know, to be searching for those truths. It's something else for a journalist to look for the facts that are going to back up their narrative rather than lo- lo- opening a, a, a conversation or looking at a story in a much more open-minded way. But that said, Scott, you wanted to wrap up that conversation. I do want to talk to both of you within this first segment here, if we could, about um, this, the infrastructure bill being signed mm-hmm. and just the political ramifications of this. Jonathan, obviously, you're involved in campaigns. And, you know, for the Democrats are concerned, this is an antidote. This is this is the way to be able to get past all the problems, COVID, inflation, everything else, and say we are building back better. Um, so given all of that, is what, what are the chances this is going to reverse the, the sagging poll numbers for the Biden administration and those who align themselves with them? I, I think you know, 20 years ago, maybe it would have reversed things, but I think uh, a few things. First off, I don't think there's anyone in the White House who really properly appreciates how negative the narrative is out, outside the D.C. Beltway. Uh, folks are very frustrated. They feel like they're not being listened to in any way, shape or form. And candidly, the, the Biden, both President Biden, Vice President Harris, they, they, they seem very tone deaf when they're asked, you know, basic questions about, you know, nuts and bolts, you know, parts of parts of living. I mean, they, uh, the press secretary dismisses people's concerns about supply chain. The press secretary dismisses people's concerns about gas prices. It's, and it's very flippant the way it's handled. And, you know, I'm sure it's great for, uh, you know, the cocktail circuit in DC, but if you're, uh, you know, if you're a guy trying to fill up your pickup truck to get back and forth to work every day, when you got a 45 minute commute and suddenly your gas prices are going from, you know, forty five dollars to fill up to a hundred dollars to fill up, that that has a big impact on people's bottom line, at, you know, out in, in in flyover country. But I, I also think though that, um, you know, look, I'm in a Republican primary right now. There's no one who supported that uh, infrastructure bill in, who, you know, who's voting in the Republican primary for the most part. The one person I met who actually supported the infrastructure bill was someone who runs a company that's going to make millions of dollars because they supply, you know, critical critical uh, needs for uh, infrastructure that will get funded by this infrastructure bill. And and even like middle of the road voters, they they really have a lot of doubts, a lot of questions about uh, this this what this thing's actually funding. Yeah, I, look, I I think that first of all, infrastructure has been talked about for so long uh, that people are just frustrated with both parties. I mean, I'm glad you know. They did it fine, but I, I don't think anyone is is cheering on Joe Biden for doing something that I think they basically think is a long overdue and b you know it's their job. Like, well, you want me to pat you on the back because you got out of bed this morning? I mean, this is your job. You're supposed to do this. I think that's number one. Number two, most of this money is not going to be spent for quite some time, uh, and so you're not going to see direct impact of it in communities. 
Uh, and number three, you know, a, a, a faraway bridge or a faraway road somewhere out in the future doesn't make up the difference for the fact that gas is $4 a gallon or bacon's 12 bucks a, a pound. If you can get it, you know, in your grocery store, I mean, it, your immediate life impact is not altered by the fact that this got done. And I think Jonathan's exactly right, Joe, and we could take a take a break after this. But I, I, I just think that the narrative on Biden is so set up that I don't know what it would take to break it at this point. I mean, you get outside the beltway, you get outside his, you know, hardest core Democrat supporters, you get outside the people who have literally voted for a piece of burnt toast before Donald Trump. You, you there is, there is nothing, there's no positive vibe about this administration. Like there's no, well, I don't like this, but I like that. It is all bad. I mean, the, the chatter on this, the vibe on it is bad. Everybody thinks he's, not running again. Nobody thinks Harris is up to running her own campaign. Everybody knows there's a leadership void in the Democratic Party. And everybody's looking at a guy who was essentially ran on moderate competence as progressive incompetence. And and not only is it tanking his own presidency, but as we've seen in polling, it's tanking the entire Democratic Party. For evidence, check out the ABC News Washington Post poll from Sunday in which Republicans had a 10-point lead on the generic ballot, which is Oh, you all know. I mean, it's unheard of in our business for Republicans to have such a lead. It's not just bringing his presidency down. It is destroying the Democratic Party as we speak. And if that kind of generic ballot holds, it's uh, Katie bar the door in the November elections next year. That's Jonathan Feltz, Scott Jennings. They both mentioned Kamala Harris. When we come back on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings, their inside White House look at what actually what they think is going on as far as those dynamics are concerned, Kamala Harris versus the rest of the Biden administration coming up on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Due to increased security, all passengers must present proper photo identification to listen to this podcast. This is Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold, Scott Jennings, Jonathan Feltz alongside. And we were talking about uh, Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, who, according to recent reporting, especially an especially uh, exhaustively reported piece by CNN, is feeling increasingly isolated, sidelined uh, amid uh, tensions within the administration, feeling like she's not being taken up for uh, the way that the Biden administration is taking up for other cabinet members, such as maybe the transportation secretary, uh, Pete Buttigieg, and his uh, paternity leave uh, situation, and also as being given all of the the worst assignments, all the losing propositions out there across the world. VPs are never necessarily the most uh, you know popular or or uh, or considered to be uh, consequential people in administrations. However, uh, as Scott mentioned before, we went, went to break that you know she certainly is. Uh, you know, would be the I guess someone you'd have to look at is is wanting to run for president in uh, the next few years. So where does this leave everything, John? Let me start with you here. First of all, as a as a White House former White House insider, somebody who worked in political affairs there, what are the dynamics do you think going on right now within this White House? So I think I mean the first thing I would point out is a lot of times these uh, the, the the friction between the president and the vice president a lot of times that can be driven on the staff level, and the two principals might not really have that much of an issue at all. But I think one thing that's really important to focus on here is this is really the first time in the 21st century that you have had a vice president who is very nakedly politically ambitious. Uh, and, and you've also got, for the first time in a, in a long time in our nation's history, a president that a lot of people are openly speculating might voluntarily only serve one term. And so it puts Kamala Harris in a very di- or vice president Harris in a very difficult position in terms of balancing out the loyalty with 
President Biden, but also trying to carve out her own niche. If you think about it, you know, Al Gore, he had certain things he was given, but it was understood that Bill Clinton was going to run for a second term in 1996. And you really start, started to see Gore try to separate himself out in that second term. And then, of course, there was the uh, you know, Lewinsky affair and things like that that kind of created a lot of other friction there and whatnot. But with uh, President George W. Bush and Vice President Cheney, he wasn't going to run. With with President Obama and Vice President Biden, the understanding and the published stories were that Biden had agreed he was not going to run. And then with with Mike Pence, he was facing a very challenging reelection. And suddenly he got plucked from that into a relatively safe position in terms of being the vice president of the United States. Uh, some might say falling upwards. Some would you know, disagree with that. But the point being is he had every reason to be loyal to Donald Trump. And, and now you have a, a classic case where that there's not that built in loyalty. But in addition to that, you've also got a president who the reality is for the first time ever, he's being exposed by the fact that he's not a great politician. He represented a small state that's basically a tax shelter uh, for for you know major finance companies. It's a very small state where he basically was running a county commissioner race in other states would be comparable to what he was doing for a statewide basis. And then when he was in the White House, President Barack Obama obviously had had the center center stage all to himself. And so the flubs and the screw ups were not quite as magnified as they are now when he is the president. And and the reality is the man has lost a step. And so you got uh, and Vice President Harris. She's looking at that. She's having to be loyal to that. She can't separate herself out. But the other thing I will point out is one thing that I think really successful politicians have is the fact they've got longtime aides. People have been around them for a long time. People they can trust, a kitchen cabinet. And those people, they're not always in the kitchen cabinet. Sometimes they're right there in the Oval Office with you. And with Kamala Harris, I mean, I, I don't believe her and her current chief of staff had any sort of real relationship prior to chief of staff being named chief of staff. Uh, Simone Standards, she was obviously the Biden communications person on the campaign, not the Harris person. And now she's the senior advisor to the vice president. And so part of me would question is, does she have aides around her that she trusts and that she feels like has her best interest at heart? And I would argue right now that the answer to that is no. You know, I, I think, Joe, on Harris, a um, couple things. One, um, she's just not very good at this. I mean, I, I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, she was not very good at running for president. It's why her campaign lasted such a short period of time. And it was always so puzzling to me why she was put on the ticket by Joe Biden. I thought it was sort of a clear moment of insecurity, you know, for Biden to do it. Uh, she wasn't good at running for president, so she gets put on the ticket. She wasn't terribly good at, at being a running mate, but, you know, that election wasn't really about the Biden-Harris ticket. It was more of a referendum on Trump, and, of course, they, they swept into office. From day one, she has not been very good at being vice president. All of her public appearances are extremely, you know, weird. I mean, this cackling is weird. Uh, she goes over to the NASA briefing last week and asks the guy about the racist trees. I mean, she has videos with children in which they have to get child actors to portray children because she can't like interact with actual kids. I mean, it is it every single weird little thing she does is another log on uh, the fire of her reputation as being a good politician. Then you throw on the policy missteps. She's handed the immigration issue. I mean, I don't think anybody in the country thinks she's done a good job with it. We just had the biggest, you know, month of, of illegal immigrants coming across the border. I mean, there's been no success there and no attention. She's handed the voting rights issue, which, you know, if you're a Democrat and you care about voting rights, where is it? You know, where is she? Uh, everything. They, they sent her to France. And at one point she has a public commentary and she's using a fake French accent. I mean, it's just bizarre interaction after bizarre interaction. So if you're the Biden people, what incentive is there to hand her anything of substance? So they pass this infrastructure bill. She's nowhere to be found on that. Pete Buttigieg, they actually ended up bypassing him too and handing it off to a new infrastructure czar, Mitch Landrieu. 
I, I think it is interesting that it, it, it seems to me the Biden people, Jen Psaki's tweet notwithstanding, have already concluded she's sort of a non-factor when it comes to doing anything useful publicly. And they're trying to figure out how to navigate that while looking like they're loyal to her, but clearly recognizing as a governing partner, she's a failure. I wanted to ask you both about that. I mean, that, that Jen Psaki tweet and a few other comments that it just seems so bizarre to me for a press secretary to have to almost come out and affirm that the vice president is is legitimate or is is consequential. I mean, how can you try to kind of retro engineer that for me as far as your time in the White House? And how does something like that actually come about? Well, look, I, I'll just I've got 30 seconds on this. And it is this White House, more than any other in our history, is basically governed by what they see on Twitter. They look on Twitter and if people they follow, the, you know, the, all the people in the blue check Twitter bubble who follow each other, if everybody's talking about something, they immediately respond to it. They did it on the immigration, the Border Patrol agents, on the horses. You know, the blue checks were tweeting about the pictures of the horses and they immediately, you know, stupidly went out and made statements that turned out to be false. They do it all the time. So everybody's talking about Harris in the blue check bubble. And so it forces Saki to respond to it. That's it. That's it. That's that's the entire reason why I think she she put that out. Pro- maybe also the Harris office asked for some support. But I think it was all generated by this small number of people talking to each other like they do all the time. Jonathan, doesn't that just feel forced, though? I mean, when you see something like that, it's, just, oh, it's, totally, it's almost embarrassing. Totally. That's, that's, that's the epitome of something that you, you don't say unless you feel like you need to say it for some some odd reason. Uh, and, you know, there was, there was no one clamoring for it necessarily, except maybe the people in the Harris office. But, I mean, you, you think about, um, not to pick on Mensa, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know a lot of people who are in Mensa, but uh, the ones I do know who are in Mensa, they're in there not because they struck me as being really smart, but because they told me they're in Mensa. And that's the only reason I know about it. And it's one of those things when you need to when you need to broadcast something like this that should be should be an obvious meaning the vice president should obviously be a vital partner. That's not a good sign that the vice president is a vital partner. For those who missed it, by the way, the tweet from Jen Psaki, quote, for anyone who needs to hear it, VP is not only a vital partner to POTUS, but a bold leader who has taken on key important challenges facing the country from voting rights to addressing root causes of migration to expanding broadband. So So here's. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was bizarre and, and it was it was so obviously in response to Twitter. And I, it's the, one of the most troubling things about this administration is their willingness to interpret Twitter as real life and their willingness to, to have high ranking government officials responding to Twitter instead of responding to facts or taking a deep breath and saying, do we need to do we need to engage in this or not? I, I find it crazy. Let me ask you all a question. If Joe Biden, after the midterm, says, look, I'm not running again. Do you believe Harris starts as the Democratic frontrunner or not? Because I, I, I would think maybe she would because being vice president makes you famous. But at this point, I'm not sure about that. Jonathan, what do you think? I, I would argue no. She does not start as the frontrunner. I think people, if, if Biden announces he's not running, they're going on a fresh face. Whether that's fair to her or not, I just think that's what the reality is. And I think that she – now she would be – Competitive, I think, but uh, clear front runner. No, I don't think so at all. You know what would be interesting is is if if he were to say he's not running, and so obviously Harris would run. You know, I assume Pete Buttigieg would run. She obviously will remain as vice president, but I would assume Buttigieg would have to resign from the cabinet to go out and focus on campaigning full time. But my my assumption is you'll have a number of people. Somebody from that Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Well, why not Bernie Sanders? I mean, Mitch McConnell on your last podcast, uh, Scott, pointed out this basically is the Sanders administration. 
It's just that Joe Biden is the vessel to make it happen. So yeah, his, why, his does, why doesn't Bernie Sanders is, run? Well, his contention is Sanders already did win. You know, he basically right. won won this, the this battle the second for the, term for the soul of the Democratic Party. I don't know. I mean, he's he's getting on up there. My assumption is somebody from his wing of the party will run one of these squad members or or someone who espouses his views. I don't know if it'll be him. And so all of a sudden you set up the sort of the Biden poll, which I guess would be occupied by Harris. And then you set up the Buttigieg poll, which is, I don't know how to describe it exactly. And then you set up the, the progressive poll, but there could be others. I mean, you, you could have a, you know, you could have a Jennifer Granholm say, well, I was a popular well, governor. Here's the question, you could have a Gretchen I mean, Whitmer, a yeah, sitting governor. You could have Gavin Newsom from California. Obviously, you know, Biden has taken on this progressive, you know, tangent, you know, as even though he, he campaigned in, in, in name as a centrist or as a moderate, but wouldn't the, assuming that the, the direction of, of the electorate continues the same direction as what we saw in Virginia and New Jersey, and there's a market correction on on uh, the the midterms, wouldn't you expect there to be a, a more of a call for uh, a more of a, a moderate or a centrist Democrat? No, no, you're misunderstanding Democrats. When faced with epic failure, they just double down on whatever they were doing. I mean, this is what's happening in Virginia. They ran a silly campaign in Virginia, all about Donald Trump and and try to make everything about race and racial issues. And the response to that has been to double down on the whole thing and say everyone who voted for Glenn Youngkin is a racist and a white supremacist. They don't typically respond to failure in the way that a rational actor might. Not, to, not that Republicans always do either, but but in this case, I, I think there is virtually no chance. They... I think most of the the leading voices in their party would say, we just didn't do enough. We didn't go far enough. And we need somebody who's going to fight and go far enough. And that was a problem with Biden and Harris. They just literally couldn't get us because they won't go far enough. There are certainly Jonathan, are. Give me the last word on it. There, there, okay. Go ahead, Jonathan. I mean, I think, I think Kentucky is probably a lot like North Carolina. And that is, there's a lot of Democrats out there who want to run for office. And you know what? They're pro-life and they're pro-gun. And you know what? They're not allowed to run for office. I mean, in, in, in a lot of cases, they're literally told, don't don't fill out the paperwork. You, We don't want you in, in office right now. And the fact is, there's a lot of folks you know, who voted for uh, uh, you know, a Democratic governor and Donald Trump uh, back in 2016, and maybe they flipped that in, in, in 2020. But right now, in a primary, Democrats, they're not, they're not going to double down on that in any way, shape, or form. I mean, they'll, they'll double down on the bad ideas, not, not the idea of rational thought. There are some folks out there, including Congressman Connor Lamb of Pennsylvania, who pleaded on Twitter, you know, if you want a senator who runs as a socialist, I'm not your guy. Uh, and so we'll see if that has any kind of an audience uh, moving forward within the Democratic Party. You're listening to The Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold. Jonathan Feltz alongside. When we come back, some lightning round questions for our North Carolina poll. Do not leave vehicles unattended. Yes, even you. This is Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold. Jonathan Feltz joining us along with Scott. And we're going to talk about what we've seen, read, and heard leading up to this podcast today. Mr. Jennings? A couple things. Uh, I know we referenced it earlier in the show, but I was just floored by the Washington Post-ABC poll that came out on Sunday and the generic ballot. And a Republican showing a 10-point lead, uh, Jonathan knows this. I mean, it is it is unheard of for, well, first of all, it's unheard of for Republicans to ever have a lead on this. Generic ballot almost always <laughs> runs towards Democrats in these media surveys. For Republicans to have a lead that large, uh, I think it had been 30 or 40 years since that had happened. And although it, I readily admit that could be an outlier, and, and, and I typically preach to people, look at the averages in polling. But it's quite apparent to me that Republicans are in such a good position. 
in this election that it, it's just, you know, I used to, I used to say, look, I think the house is a mortal lock and the Senate's 50, 50. But if you look inside that survey in the battleground Senate States, the generic ballot lead for the Republicans was like 23 points. And so I know uh, a lot of people have been talking about uh, recruiting woes for the Republicans may limit their upside in the Senate, but with an environment that good, if it stays that good, uh, you know, it makes, <laughs> it makes candidate quality a lot, you know, uh, a lot more, uh, malleable in terms of uh, predictive uh, on the outcome. So that was one thing. And then the second thing, just reading, I'm going to Europe in December. I'm going to go to uh, Germany for a few days. I'm going to go to France, going to go to Normandy. And so I'm getting into the Ambrose, Stephen Ambrose's uh, 2012 book about D-Day. And so that's uh, that's what's at the top of my audible right now in terms of uh, listening to uh, what I think is is one of the definitive accounts of uh, the most important day of the 20th century. I've been uh, following a lot of the COP26 you know, the climate conference readouts. And I thought it was really one statistic, which, which came out of that, that I saw that I thought was really interesting and perhaps revealing is that there is currently more uh, coal power plant production uh, under construction in China than there is currently capacity of coal plants in the United States. So for, no matter what you hear about in terms of uh, rhetoric and, and, and what kind of, uh, declarations or commitments are being made, China is doubling down on coal while the U.S. is perhaps unilaterally beginning that phase down uh, process. Jonathan, and they, weren't even, they, weren't, they weren't even they weren't even at the summit. You know, I mean, that, that's the that's thing. Right. Like, we, I mean, you know, the United States can bang its head against the wall at once on this issue. But until you have China and, you know, Brazil and India, I mean, the other, everybody else has to participate. China, most importantly. And they, I mean, they don't care. They're not <laughs> they don't listen to us about this. They're going to do what's best for China. And if building coal plants is what's best for them, that's what they're going to do. Well, and that, this one of the other postscript of that is that it's interesting. I mean, literally the, the 11th hour, the, the, the joint agreement coming out of, of the climate summit was everyone had agreed leading up to the 11th hour, it's going to be a phase out of coal. And then they changed it to phase down on the insistence of China and India. So they changed that at the last minute. They still have that, that kind of muscle. Jonathan. Uh, well, in addition to being a political nerd, I'm also a comic book nerd. And so the most interesting thing I've read recently, I came across an article yesterday. I can't remember the source, but if you just Google uh, Abu Dhabi and Warner Brothers Hotel and Batmobile, apparently the Warner Brothers Hotel in Abu Dhabi has the actual Batmobile from the new movie. So it's the first time it was publicly displayed. And so it's pretty interesting to see the, uh, the new Batmobile. It's uh, much different than what we've seen with the uh, comic book versions from the uh, 80s films and the War Machine versions from the Justice League and also the uh, Christopher Nolan films. And it uh, looks like a, a street legal ver- uh, vehicle has been converted for, for crime fighting. So I found that to be really interesting. I, I thought of you the other day when I was at the uh, CNN building, the uh, you know Warner Media building in New York. I was up for election night coverage and I wandered on to, the, uh, to one of the floors uh, where some of that content is created by accident. And uh, they actually had a Batman conference room. I sent you a picture <laughs> of it and uh, noted uh, we noted that uh, we didn't know Batman had an office at uh, CNN, uh, but uh, we found it. And that was he wasn't there at the time, so wasn't able to send my regards. But uh, the first time we found out CNN supports private citizen anti-crime initiatives. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, all right. On that note, we'll. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Time for lightning round for Jonathan Feltz, uh, North Carolina. And I'm going to start with the first question. And then, Scott, we're going to go ping pong back and forth, okay? All so, right. on the comic book realm, favorite Marvel character? Daredevil. Uh, who? Why? Daredevil. Daredevil. Why? Okay, all right. 
I, I think I just like his sense of justice, and it was a little bit of a different superhero in that he was blind, and so I just always really liked it as a uh, as a small child and kept that uh, appreciation as an adult. So there's some Daredevil news. If you've been following the the news about the new Spider-Man movie, there's some there's some been leaks from the set that indicate Daredevil may be, or at least the the lawyer may be in yeah. in the movie. And so we'll see if that pans out. I have I have been hearing that. Yes. Yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, I'm going to keep it on. I'm going to keep it in the uh, uh, comic book world. Who is the best Batman villain and why? Ooh, boy, that's a tough question. Um, I feel like we got to go with the Joker because they're both equally committed uh, and equally maniacal in terms of their their commitment to what their cause is. I mean, the Joker's case is anarchy, and in Batman's case, it's justice, no matter the cost. All right. Best place to visit and eat in North Carolina? Well, that is a tough question that can get me in a lot of trouble here. Um, boy, uh, I personally like the mountains of North Carolina. A lot of people are beach people, but I think uh, Asheville, North Carolina is a beautiful place to be. As far as best place to eat, um, I'll say Stanberry, right here in my neighborhood, here in Raleigh, North Carolina. I think it's a great restaurant, uh, a cool vibe. You don't have to get dressed up or anything like that. Just kind of come as you are, and uh, it's got something a little bit different every week. My follow-up lightning round, though, is what is the what is the signature food, though? What If I'm going to North Carolina, what do I have to eat? Well, everyone's going to say barbecue, and so I'm not going not gonna to start that fight. But you've got to make it a point to eat both eastern barbecue and western barbecue. Eastern North Carolina is the vinegar-based, and uh, western North Carolina is going to be the, more the tomato-based. But it's not this, none of this grilled meat with sauce la- lathered on or anything like that. It's actually chopped pork. That's the real barbecue. All right, I've got one. Uh, Jonathan, uh, in our social circle, you're famous, of course, for having once done a literal nationwide driving <laughs> tour. And so I want you to think back on your tour and tell us, what was the best stop you made in what would what we would consider to be flyover country USA? Uh, that's a tough question because uh, there's lots of, I mean, in flyover country, there's lots of places that you're never going to go to in terms of like, hey, there's a business trip. I can go 30 minutes out of my way. I really enjoy going to Metropolis, Illinois, uh, mm-hmm. which is this not close really to anything whatsoever. You got the Superman statue. I'm pretty sure the city forefathers just gave that building to the guy who had a big Superman collection, but that's really cool to see. Uh, I, I don't think it's there anymore, but I want to say it was St. Paul's, Oklahoma, about 45 minutes south of Oklahoma City. There was the action figure, uh, superhero action figure, Hall of Fame, and museum. But once again, I think someone gave the guy a building and a tax credit in order to put his uh, collection out of his parents' basement and into into this building. So those were those were two cool, two cool things. Okay, you mentioned superheroes. What about real life hero? Who is your real life hero, or heroes if necessary? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, a lot, lot, a lot of answers there. But I mean, I just think, especially having just, I did this in two thousand nine, right after the Bush administration, and coming out of that and going to the Reagan Library. Uh, I think it's hard to go through the Reagan Library without being captured by his innate sense of optimism that he had throughout his career. And uh, that's that's what really stuck with me on that tour. I did, I think, eight presidential libraries during that tour, but. Uh, just the Reagan sense of optimism really is something that had stuck with me through that through that uh, experience. And the final uh, lightning round question from Scott Jennings: What is the best famous person encounter you have ever had? Easy, Adam West. I thought you were going to say Stan Lee. I thought well, uh, you know what? That's actually that's, 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 that's Adam West. You're, you're going you know, to rebut well, his own experience? No, no. Well, see, I live so I like comic books not quite as much as Jonathan, but but almost as much. And he, but he he has the collection, but he's also had these encounters. He met Adam. Well, West. He met Stanley. You also uh, have a signed photo. You met one of the cat Catwoman actresses, right? 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's uh well, I, I, since you brought it up, I got to tell the Stanley story uh, just briefly. We were giving him an award. I, I'm blanking on the award, but it was you know just below the Kennedy Honors. Uh, there in like year eight of the Bush administration, we invited him in for breakfast, and you know of course we had the uh, the naval stewards there in the White House mess, uh, non commissioned uh, uh, officers, and they uh, they all recognized Stan Lee, and when they realized who he was, they and I had never seen this. I'd seen a lot of famous people in the White House mess, but they they literally lined up. They had different you know. You know, uh, things from the White House mess to get him to sign, and he could not have been more gracious in any way, shape, or form. That was that was actually really really cool. And now that you mentioned it, Scott, that was that was fun to watch. That, yeah, yeah. Though you, you've had some cool, uh, you've had some cool comic book uh, 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 encounters, and you've you've sought them out, and you've uh, you've been very deft about uh, uh, making those encounters. And you've also been pretty awesome about all your collection, which I. Uh, this is an audio only podcast. This week, but I can <laughs> see it on my screen. You've got your collection behind you, and. Uh, I'll be I'll be looking forward to when you open the Feltz Comic Con Museum in uh, North Carolina. <laughs> my my wife will be too. <laughs> all right, all right, Scott. We're in a flyover country, but take us home. All right, thanks for being with us on uh, Flyover Country this week. I'm Scott Jennings, Joe Arnold, my co-host. Great job, Jonathan. Good job being our special guest panelist. We'll have you back, Jared Crawford, on the board this week. Thanks for your uh, help in production. Join us again. Uh, I'll just tease the next episode. We're doing Thanksgiving Fantasy Draft. Thanksgiving Fantasy Draft is coming up. You're not going to want to miss that conversation on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at scottjenningsky on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing, and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. 